<laughs> so to tell you a little bit about me, I um, am married to the coolest girl in the world. Her name's Candice. We're going to be, uh, it'll be, we'll be celebrating 10 years in January, which is, which is good. So far, so good. We're looking forward to 10,000 more. She's just so hot, and uh, <laughs> she loves the Lord. She prays for me. She's just the best. And, um, and I have, we have three, uh, we have together three little boys, Kai, who's seven, Caleb, who's five, and Carver, who is four months old now, just squishy and awesome. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to, to love one woman and to raise three sons um, in, in the truth of, of God's word. <clears throat> now, uh, how I got here is a little funny. Now, how many of you came to the first and second service? Oh, my goodness. Okay, how many of you came to just the second service? And now also the third. Okay, how many of you are here for the first time at this service? Oh, bless you. We got a great mix. Okay, so uh, I played in a, a metal band for a long time, joined a metal band in 2007, which is kind of a, the secret, the top secret backdoor into ministry that nobody tells you about <laughs> at, at Bible college. Um, you don't, this, it's the only way it would be okay for me to come preach at your church with my neck tattoo. Um, <laughs> but God, God is, he's gracious. They just justify it like he just did that because he was in a band, you know, whatever. So I get away with it. It's fine. Everybody's happy. But, um, I, uh, during that time, uh, clubs was preaching the gospel every night in bars and in nightclubs on tour with atheist bands, satanic bands, openly antichrist bands. And, and we would go on these tours because of the kind of music that we played. And we would go into these venues that were not church youth groups and, and we'd, we'd preach the gospel and we would see satanists and drug addicts and angry, violent atheists surrender to the lordship of King Jesus every night. And it was this, this beautiful thing. And, and um, you know, the, the interesting thing, I think, about that lifestyle is, is we did it every night. We would, we would drive in a van six hours, eight hours, and then we'd load in our gear and set up and sound check and do whatever we had to do, and then we would play our concert and we'd preach the gospel, and, and every night we would be met with a different crowd of people that were dealing with a different set of issues that needed to hear a different message. And so we had to learn very, very quickly to rely on the leadership of Holy Spirit. We had to learn very quickly to pay attention to the, the, uh, the old church called it unction. You know what that means to pay attention to the the internal spiritual impulse that must have come from God. And so uh, so I, I really want to help bring you to a place tonight where, where that unction, that impulse, can become just as familiar to you as the, vo as the voice of fear has been until tonight. Now, to give you a bit of strategy, today as I was praying for your church, I felt that, that Yahweh wanted to take us through really three different things. I think he gave me three assignments. This is a different message for those of you that are here for the first time at this service. I preached one message in the first service, a different message in the second service, and now a different message in the third, because why not? 
So if you, if you missed the first two, um, you are just coming in in the 11th hour, and you're going to just, you're going to get the same empowering that I think everybody else is going to get, all right? You're, you guys are cheating. Congratulations. Um, but I, I felt that, that the Father told me that, that in the first service, I was to give a key for permission, or, or that, that he wanted you to be permitted as a church, as a corporate body of believers. He wanted you to be first permitted, second uh, positioned, and third empowered. And now, what it means to be permitted is that we have to understand that it is only by the authority of King Jesus that we have the permission to lay hold of destiny. This as a moment of destiny, a defining moment for this church community and even a defining moment for our generation. We have to understand that we, in our own passion, our own creativity, our own uh, uh, abilities, or our own prowess, our own skill, we don't have the capacity to to earn our own destiny. We don't have the capacity to step into our own destiny. It's been laid before us, and the Father has, has set it so high above us that we cannot reach it unless he lifts us up. Because he designed our destiny to keep us dependent on him. If I could do what I'm called to do without him, it would undermine the relationship I was created for. If you could do what you were called to do without his intimate involvement every day, it would undermine the intimacy, the relationship that Jesus died for you to have. He didn't just die for you to change the world. He died for you to be with him. And, and if we could ever find a way to change the world for Jesus without Jesus, I think we all would probably be more inclined to do that. The tragic thing, though, is, is that we, we discover something that works, and then we build an altar there, and we live our lives there, and we write a book about it, and that book becomes a New York Times bestseller, and other churches implement the thing that works for us and it gets people in the door and they assume that it's working. But the truth is that if I am doing what I'm doing because Rick Warren said it would work instead of because the Holy Spirit said it would work, I'm insulting the God that I claim to serve. And I'm saying your strategies aren't going to work good enough for your own purposes. I've got a strategy of my own. And so... In the first service, I talked about being permitted. We have the permission now because of the authority of King Jesus to lay hold of our destiny, right? But permission doesn't mean that it's ever going to happen. And in the second service, I talked about being positioned. Because if you are permitted but not positioned... You may have the right to lay hold of something and never even see it to be able to grab it. Similarly, you could be positioned without being permitted and you'd have to look at it your entire life and never be able to lay hold of it. And so we cannot be positioned without being permitted and we cannot be permitted without being positioned. The two have to go together or what we'll end up with is torment. What we'll end up with is like the man in John chapter 5 who had been sitting for 28 years by the pool of Bethesda, unable to drag himself into the water in time and watching other people get healed in front of him. It's a torment. That's not, it's not divine. That's not God's divine plan. God's divine plan was to send the Son of God into his life and transform his situation. 
And so, spoiler alert, God's divine plan is to send the Son of God into your life and transform your situation. This is what happens when we get permitted and positioned is that God's ultimate plan is that we would be empowered. And so as you were permitted by the legal authority held by Jesus the King, as you were positioned by your commitment to the family of God that Jesus died to establish in the earth, now, hallelujah, now you have come to a place, I think, where you are both permitted and positioned to lay hold of the power that is going to be needed for your destiny to become a reality in your life. And when I say you, I don't mean your personal destiny. I mean our corporate destiny as the people. Of- we, have to, we have to have a bigger view than just you making sure your bills are paid on time. We have to have a bigger view than just, uh, you know, feeling better about yourself at, at the end of the workday. Those things are all important. I'm not saying that, that you should feel terrible about yourself and be poor for the rest of your life. What I am saying, though, is that if your view ends with your life, you're selling the gospel short. The, one of the fundamental attributes, I've ta- taught our interns, one of the things that we've been called to, the things we've been called to are dominion, intimacy, and multiplication. Or co- Sorry, communion, dominion, and multiplication. And if we have communion and dominion, the inevitable byproduct must be multiplication or we're communing with something that we were never intended to commune with. If your vision stops at you, you've married, if your vision stops at your job, you've married your job. If your vision stops at your marriage, you've married your marriage. You you haven't come into covenant with God because if you've come into covenant with God, the inevitable byproduct is that you would multiply the revelation of the lordship of Jesus that he's given you. So anyway, tonight, let's go after power. This is really where I want to get us. We're just going to camp out on this. Say boldness. Boldness. Say power. Power. What if you could leave here with uncontainable boldness and unstoppable power? I, listen, I really, I really believe this. So one of the things that we do in our ministry at Awakening Evangelism is we have an online school of evangelism. And it's an eight-week online course, and we have everybody from senior pastors to factory workers, stay-at-home moms, and missionaries on the field that take this course because it helps teach them to articulate the gospel, helps position them to, to advance the kingdom in, in their own world, wherever God has put them. But here's the secret. I'm going to give you guys the cheat code. It's called the Holy Spirit. (laughs) We used to, back in college, we used to be able to test out of a course where if you already know the stuff, you can just get the credits for it. You don't have to go through an entire semester of that class. That's what we're going to do tonight. Is uh, You're just going to test out of my evangelism training course. (laughs) You can still take it if you want. It starts... It starts on October 1st. You can sign up at the resource table outside. Um, but, uh, but tonight I'm going to give you really the only thing I could ever give you that would enable you to glorify Jesus in your life. God. Let me explain it like this. In, gosh, 2014, 2015, I was in New York City. And uh, I was doing an event there. Uh, playing in, in the, the band that I was in. And uh, before the show, we were doing an autograph signing. And a couple dozen people are coming through and are signing 
posters and taking pictures, and signing posters and taking pictures, and nodding politely while people say, hey, I really loved your last album. And it's the same conversations over and over again. And, and this girl walks through, and she's just hiding behind her hair. You ever see somebody do that? She's doing her best to block out the world. But, um, but I, I look at her through the eyes of Jesus, and I see her. Despite her best efforts to hide, I see her. And I say, hey, what's your name? And she says, my name is Marcella. And I said, hey, Marcella, it's so good to meet you. Do you know that Jesus loves you? And she said, oh, I love that you got to stand for your faith. That's so cool. And I said, that's not what I asked you. Do you know that Jesus loves you? And she said, oh, uh, you know, I don't really believe in that. And, uh, and, and it was like holy boldness took over my body. And I said, Marcella, I want you to know the God you've rejected is not the God in heaven. And when I, when I said that, it was like God began to give me insight into her life that I couldn't possibly have had. And I took it a step further. Now, just the context of this, there are four other guys in my band that are standing here. There's a couple security guards. There's uh, guys that work for us. There's probably 20 other people standing in line behind her waiting for me to get done signing her poster. But I stop and I say, in fact, Marcella... The abuse you suffered at the hands of people that claim to be Christians broke the heart of God. And he wants to restore you as a testament to these perverse people of what it really looks like to give your life fully to the King of Kings. And I said, God wants to heal the broken places that, uh, the places in your heart that abuse broke. And he wants to bring you in to the joy and the freedom of a real relationship with the lover of your soul, Jesus. And by, before I get these statements out of my mouth, she's weeping. And, uh, and so I grab this girl and I just hold her and I say, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Don't worry about your family members. Don't worry about the ones that you trusted to take care of you who abused you and took advantage of you. Don't worry about them. I'm telling you that there is a father in heaven that will never leave you and never forsake you. And by now she is sobbing into my shirt and I'm holding her. And eventually she gets herself together and brushes her hair back a little bit. And I said, Marcella, do you want to Give your life to Jesus today. And she said, yeah, I do. And so we prayed. I held her hands and we prayed. And she gave her life to Jesus in front of 25 strangers at a meet and greet for a metal band. And I, I want to tell you this to say that, that when the Holy Spirit has taken possession of your body... You might be afraid of the awkwardness of the situation, but he really is not. He really doesn't care. And I've said for years that the Holy Spirit will take you into uncomfortable situations, but the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. And I think that I was painting an inaccurate picture of the Holy Spirit when I said, you know, you, you're going to step outside of your comfort zone with the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen is that he's going to broaden your comfort zone. Why would you need a comforter if the Holy Spirit was only going to call you to do things you're already comfortable with? Get it? I would never need to be comforted if the Holy Spirit was just going to call me to eat chips and watch TV all day, right? 
Of course the Holy Spirit's called a comforter because where you're going, if you surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is a place that if I were to tell you right now, you probably wouldn't sign up to go. <laughs> but this is, this is what faith looks like, isn't it? I've said for years, it doesn't take faith to believe God exists. It takes faith to put your life in his hand not knowing what he'll do with it. It takes faith to, to wake up tomorrow morning and say, not my will, but yours be done. It takes faith to say, Holy Spirit, I'm going to go into work under the power of God and believe that you dream of revival in my work even more than I do. I'm going to walk into the grocery store and believe that you love that cashier more than life itself, and I'm going to treat her accordingly. This is what faith looks like. It looks like we have said yes to the call of God before we even know what it is. I remember, man, years ago, atheists used to ask me little questions. They'd say things like, if God asked you to jump off a bridge, would you, would you do it? And before they'd even get the question out of their mouth, yes, yeah. The answer is yes. I already said yes preemptively to everything he ever calls me to do. So you don't even have to ask me any more of those questions. If God called you to, the answer is already yes. This is what faith means. I feel like I'm talking some of you out of being Christians. It's probably better that way. It would be better for you to give up on the faith altogether than for you to think you can follow Jesus on your own terms. It would be better for you to give up on your faith altogether than to think you can follow Jesus on your own terms. He demands that he be the Lord of your life. I am not asking you to make Jesus an accessory to your life. I'm asking you to make Jesus the purpose of your existence. And if you're not willing to do that, I can't make you willing to do that. But I just want to draw the line in the sand and say, if the life you're living is a life in which Jesus has to coexist with your career, or Jesus has to fight for attention from your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, or Jesus is, the, uh, uh, is reserved for Sunday afternoons or evenings, and when you go into work, you can flip the switch and leave Jesus at the door, what you're living in is less than biblical Christianity. What you're living in is less than the dream Jesus held in his heart when he hung on a cross with you in mind. So let me explain it like this. Jesus, we love Jesus. We stood in here and we sang, all hail King Jesus. Said something astonishing in John chapter 16, verse 7. He said something that if I didn't just say it's in the Bible and Jesus said it, you probably would think it's blasphemous. Jesus said, it is better for you that I go away because if I do not go, I cannot send the helper to you, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, then I will send him to you. Now, let me translate that just a little bit and explain it like this. Jesus just said, it is better for you to have the Holy Spirit than to have Jesus Christ in the flesh sitting right next to you. I, listen, I don't know about you, but if Jesus Christ in the flesh was sitting right next to me, I might live a little different. I'd just enter into Google Maps, where's the nearest children's hospital? I'd call the news on the way. Meet me at the front door. 
<laughs> St. Jude's, it's about to go down. <laughs> and we'd clear it out, right? Get the cameras ready. Jesus is rolling through St. Jude's. This is going to be awesome, right? Where's the closest crack house? Somebody, let's go to Las Vegas and spend like six hours. We're going to flip the city on its head. Jesus is here. But in his opinion, it is better for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to have Jesus in the flesh right next to you. Can you imagine how bold you would be at work if Jesus walked in the front door with you? Can you imagine how bold you'd be in the grocery store? Every time somebody rolls past in a wheelchair, you'd be like, hey, get them. Do the thing, Jesus. And yet Jesus considers it better for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to have Jesus Christ in the flesh walking right next to us. And if that's what Jesus thought, we should believe him. And if that's what Jesus thought, then why do our lives look so much less powerful than they would if we had Jesus Christ in the flesh standing right next to us? How can we walk past people in a wheelchair and say, bummer? How can we look at St. Jude's and say, I don't know, send some money. Hopefully someday... Somebody steps into a level of anointing that will be able to help those kids, but it sure isn't me. How can we continually, day after day, sit right next to somebody that is on their way to hell in work and never have enough compassion to step one inch outside of our comfort zone and say, Hey, I have an idea for you. Can I pray for you? I think that we are selling the Spirit of God short. We have to understand. Listen, we have Christmas spirit, and it just means to be excited about Christmas. <laughs> and we have school spirit, and it just means to be excited about your school. And I grew up in a church where the Holy Spirit just meant to be excited about holiness. It means that I come into church and there's spiritual things happening, music, and the people that get the Holy Spirit are just the most excited people. And we diminish the Holy Spirit to think that it's just enthusiasm about God. To think that it is passion for church. The Holy Spirit is God. The fullness of God dwelling in an earthen vessel, in a human flesh and and, and blood, body. And what if God walked into your workplace tomorrow morning? What if God walked onto the campus of your school tomorrow morning? What if God walked into the grocery store tomorrow night or drove through Starbucks on the way to work? Would it be a little bit different? And we have in our teaching and in our Christian discussion, we've diminished the seriousness of the presence of the Holy Spirit inside to accommodate passive Christianity. Compassion is inconvenient. So instead of pretending, so instead of 
admitting that we just don't want to care for the person in front of us, we pretend like we don't have the tools. Let me say that again. Instead of admitting that we just don't want to care for the person in front of us, we've developed entire theologies to accommodate our inaction and we pretend like we just don't have what it takes to help. But you do. You can't. You know what you need? Say boldness. boldness. Say power. power. It's real simple. But how do we get that, right? Better sign up for my eight-week uh, online evangelism training course. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> but how do, we, how do we get boldness and power, right? Because it's easy to come to church. It's easy to come to church and to say, yeah, pray for me to have boldness, right? But then you leave and you still feel fear. Can I say something about fear? It's okay to feel it. It's not okay to follow it. Let me, I heard a pastor say it like this. He said, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you don't have to make it, uh, let it make a nest there. Right? If you, if you feel it, you feel it. But you don't have to let it live there. It doesn't have to move in. So, um, let me just tell you a story, okay? Uh, there's a fearful man in this book I read one time named Peter. <laughs> Peter's best friend and boss was on trial. And he was convicted in a court of law and was about to get put to death. And, uh, and they said, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter said, no, I don't know him because he's afraid. And somebody else came and they said, hey, wait a minute, I, I think I saw you with him. And he said, no, you haven't. I don't even know him because he was afraid. And then somebody else came and they said, no, yeah, you are one of his disciples. And he said, no, I don't know him. I've never been with him in my life because he's afraid. So this fearful guy turns it around. And... Uh, a few weeks later, uh, there's a feast called the Feast of Pentecost. And he and his friends are there, and this is the end of a 10-day-long prayer meeting because his boss, you know the story, right? The guys that killed him misplaced the body. And people, start, people started seeing him again pop up all over the place, and it, just, it was a big scandal. Uh, uh, just an administrative nightmare for the centurions, I'm sure. <laughs> Lots of paperwork on that one. <laughs> and, uh, and he tells them, he tells them, go into all the earth and make disciples of, of every nation. But first, here's, I think, an interesting thing is that Mark 16 and Acts chapter 1, I think, are the same conversation. The Great Commission... Um, happens, Jesus says, I want you to go, but before you go, I need you to wait. And I think we get so quick to go that we forget that before anybody went anywhere, they went into the prayer room. That before anybody went anywhere, they went into the place of 
devotion to each other, 120 of them pressed into the presence of God together for 10 straight days until power from on high was poured out on them to such a degree that they couldn't hide it even if they wanted to. And we so often, we are so eager to go that we forget that part of the command of Jesus was also to wait. To, to wait until you are so possessed by the Holy Spirit that you, that you can't stay still. You're so possessed by the Holy Spirit that every step you take is ordained by God and every word you speak is empowered with His presence. So, so they're waiting. They're in, they're in, the, uh, in the upper room and you know the story in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly... They're together in one accord and suddenly a sound like a mighty rushing wind fills the room. Cloven tongues of fire come to rest on their foreheads. They all begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. And then suddenly they break out of that upper room and they're out in the street. And the Bible says that when that sound, the sound like mighty rushing wind occurred, that other people gathered uh, to, to the building. Other people came to find them because they heard something supernatural. How many of you know that it's not your persuasion or even your persistence that's going to bring somebody to see, to, to hear what it is that you, that you say? It is, uh, it's the supernatural at work in your life. It was, people love to follow Jesus for his miracles. He drew them in with his miracles and he drove them out with his teaching. <laughs> Selah. <laughs> so, uh, so he, so, so Peter, right, he's in this company of people and, uh, and I love, I love the story of, of Pentecost, and maybe it's the evangelist in me that I just can't tell the story without telling this part of the story, that they are in an upper room upstairs, and this sound comes, and tongues of fire, and they're speaking in tongues, and then it doesn't even say they walk downstairs. It just says they're outside now. Um, nobody has an idea. Hey, I know. Let's do an outreach. Uh, they just are out there. And I, and I love, I love this because I think it's a, a, a good litmus test for us as spirit-filled believers because I think that the reality of, of God's word conveys this truth that any truly spirit-led movement will inevitably result in evangelism. It will inevitably result in a concern for souls. If, I mean, if the, if the Acts 2 church was anything like the Pentecostal or the Charismatic church of 2018, a sound like a mighty rushing wind would have filled the upper room and cloven tongues of fire and other tongues, and then they would have, like, rolled around on the ground and prophesied back and forth to each other and had their worship band record an album they could put on iTunes, and then they would have waited until it lifted and they could recompose themselves, and then they'd go out into the street like nothing ever happened to them. Maybe they'd tell a friend or two, hey, you got to come to the upper room with me next week. It's crazy. <laughs> but what happens is the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the Holy Spirit empowers these people and they explode out into the street. It's uncontainable agenda. And Spirit has taken possession of your body. You need to know the Holy Spirit has one agenda and it's not your comfort zone. The Holy Spirit has one concern, and it is the glory of Jesus. It is to glorify. The Holy Spirit's earthly assignment is to glorify Jesus. And if Holy Spirit takes possession of your body, guess what your body gets used for? One thing, and one thing only, and that is to glorify Jesus. 
And so these people get possessed by the Holy Ghost and they get, they explode out into the street and suddenly evangelism is happening. And this same scared little man called Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel, a short, simple gospel message that takes less than three minutes to read. And 3,000 people are brought into the kingdom in a moment. And then stuff starts to get weird, right? (laughs) These believers start doing really crazy things like gathering house to house, breaking bread with each other, devoting themselves to the, the teachings of their leaders. They didn't like split off and go start their own church because they like this leader better. (laughs) They committed themselves to the community of people that God had knit them into. That's part of being positioned. You know that? That's part of being positioned. If you're permitted and empowered, but you're not positioned, it's like having all the skill in the world at basketball, but never getting on the court. And so, uh, and so they, they commit themselves to each other, and then something real crazy happens. Peter and John, maybe the next day, are walking into the temple, as they have done hundreds or thousands of other times, and they see this man sitting in a gate called Beautiful. And uh, they have likely seen this man hundreds of other times, but something's different this time. This time, God is alive on the inside of them. And they're walking past this man, and they can't ignore him anymore. And, and uh, they look at him, and he, he says, look at us. And the man has been a beggar his whole life. And so he's sitting in this gate thinking, maybe I'll get some money. Maybe they'll bring me some food. Maybe they'll you know, help, me, help me out with something. And, and so uh, Peter says, look at us. And he looks at him, and then he says, you know, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And the man stands up and he goes his way, leaping and praising God. So, so, so he doesn't just stand up and sort of feebly walk away. He takes off running and dancing. Now, it causes a commotion. The Bible says that everybody in the temple, everybody in the city becomes aware of what happened. Now, that's a problem because people start coming to Peter and John, and they say, what is this? And they talk about the authority of the name of King Jesus. They talk about how they got permission. You see in this, right? Permission, uh, permitted, positioned, and empowered. They're talking about how they got permitted to be able to do this. And they say, there is life in the name of Jesus. And uh, and 5,000 more people come into the kingdom that day. But that is a serious problem for the rulers of the time because... It's going to be a bad look for their group because they thought that they had done away with this whole Jesus movement. They thought when they killed him that it was over with. But, you know, like I said, the whole scandal with the body, it kind of got out of hand now. So now instead of 12 or 120, now there's like 8,120 of them. That's a problem. So they call Peter and John and they say, come here. They bring them into their inner courts, their, their chambers, and they begin to threaten them. And, uh, and they say, you have to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And I love, I love that about this story. Their issue, if you want to look at it, this is in Acts chapter 4. That's where I'm going to be tonight if you have 
a Bible and you want to and you want to look at it. In Acts chapter four, some really incredible things happen. These these people are upset. They get together and they begin to threaten John and Peter. And then Peter, scared Peter, you remember him? Scared Peter stands up and says, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Scared Peter isn't scared anymore. Scared Peter is very aware of how he got permitted positioned and empowered to be able to pull this crippled man up off his, his beggar's mat. And then he goes on and he says, this is the stone which was reject, rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And in verse 12 he says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Scared Peter. <laughs> Sounds like a rock. Immovable. Unshakable. And verse 13 says something incredible. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. It is not your education or your training that qualifies you to walk in the power of God. It is simply having been with Jesus. Do you want to know? People ask me all the time, like, men, I'd love to have your boldness. Well, I, I've just been with Jesus. I, listen, I wish there was a class you could take or a book you could read that would just produce it. It's just, you just have to be with Jesus. You just have to be with Jesus. You have to stare in astonishment at the brightness of the sun until you get blind to the fear of, of man. Until you get blind to the opinions of the people around you. You just have to let the blinding glory of the sun close your eyes to the opinions of others. So, uh, so this, can, this continues, right? And they, they tell him, you, you can't, you have to stop doing this. We're losing power. We're losing authority. We're losing respect. This is not what God wants. Understand, the, the Pharisees, they're not, they're not coming to them saying, Rome doesn't want this. They're coming at them saying, this is not what God wants. You have to know that you know that you know that what you're doing is, is God's will. Because there will be people that guarantee you that what you're doing is not what God wants. That what God, I remember, God, David and I, early on in our band, we were so fired up about people being saved that we would literally dance every time somebody came into the kingdom We'd run around and shout and scream and go crazy. And I remember specifically there was a band, maybe one of the first tours I did after I joined the band, who were all Christian guys. And so they, they were bigger than us, and they would play after us every night. And, uh, and, and during their set, I would just be walking around to the kids outside sharing the gospel. David, too. We'd be praying for people, and people would be giving their lives to Christ every night during this band's set. And we'd go up to these guys. They were all older than us. We were like, you know, maybe 20 Nine, uh, he was probably 18 years old, 17. And um, so we're young guys, right? These guys are all late 20s, you know, still angry probably that their band isn't big enough to be touring with bigger bands than us. And, um, and, so, uh, and so we'd run up to these guys, though, after their set, and we'd be like, 10 people gave their lives to Jesus while you were playing tonight. And at first on the tour, they would sort of patronize us and say, oh, oh that's great, cool. 
I'm glad. Good job. And then, uh, and then the next night, eight people gave their lives to Jesus tonight. Fifteen people gave their lives to Jesus tonight while you were playing. This is awesome. God is moving in our generation. And then a couple weeks into the tour, it got awkward. And they finally came out and said, you don't have to do all of that. And we said, yeah, but we want to. <laughs> Give it a try sometime. And the rest of the tour was just conversation after conversation where these guys were telling us, the only reason you're doing this is because you've got youthful zeal. But eventually you'll grow up and you'll get mature like us and you'll just want to play your music and go grab a beer at the bar and sit down and have a heart-to-heart conversation with somebody. I mean, after all, that's what Jesus would do. Jesus wouldn't want to push his beliefs on people. He would just, you know, he would just want to be friendly and kind and accepting to them. I want to shout this from the rooftops. Wisdom will multiply, disqualify you from having zeal. Godly wisdom will multiply your zeal. Listen, I'm a lot older than I was when I started in the band, but I'm telling you I burned for Jesus hotter today than I did on day number one. As you get older, you don't have to get colder. When you get older, you don't have to get dry and distant and complacent and set in your ways. I'm telling you, you can burn hotter today than you did on the first day. And so these sad, old, religious men tell Peter and John, you're doing it wrong. This is not what God wants. And if you keep doing it, it's going to cost you everything. And they threatened them. And I don't, the Bible doesn't say exactly what was said there in Acts chapter 4, but it does say, uh, but, but we do know Peter was crucified upside down. John dipped in boiling oil, and then when that didn't work, exiled uh, to, to the, an island called Patmos. We know that disciples were beheaded. They were pulled apart with horses, stabbed to death with spears, set on fire. And this is what was coming for these men. In Acts chapter 4, these men come face to face with the reality that it is going to cost them their families, their livelihood, likely their lives. It's going to cost them everything. And they're faced with a decision. And I've been saying all night, I believe that you are being presented with a moment of decision tonight. That this church community is in what God is calling a moment of decision for what could be your finest hour. For what could be the moment that, that Riverhouse exploded into a global movement. And these men, in their moment of decision, they go back to the early believers. They go and find all the believers, all the brethren that they can find, and they gather them together in Acts chapter 4. And they tell them about the threats that they had just received, they tell them about the cost that they're going to have to pay if they're going to continue down this road. And I love the early church's response because they start in Acts chapter 4 with worship. They start and they, uh, uh, they start in Acts chapter 4 verse, uh, I'll start in 23. It says, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They start with worship. They may be powerful political leaders. 
They may be influential men, powerful men. They may be well-respected and widely admired men, but you are God, and they are only men. And at no point as they begin to pray, do they ever pray that God would make it easy or convenient or comfortable or cheap for them to follow him. No, they were aware of the worthiness of Jesus. No one had to convince them of that. Jesus deserved their lives and so much more. And they knew it. So they didn't ask for the persecution to pass them by or for it to cost them nothing. They asked for two things. I'll start in verse 29. It says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, somebody say boldness. With all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Say power. power. They pray for two things, boldness and power. They don't pray for comfort, convenience. They don't pray for influence or respect. They don't, play, they don't even pray for revival. They pray for boldness and power. And I, I want you to under, can I get somebody, we're going to just, where's the whole band? Is the whole band still here? Bring them. Um, <laughs> come on, stay with me. We're going to be here. Grab a Snickers, we're going to be here for a while. Stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. They pray for two things, what are they? Faced with impossible odds. Faced with the reality that it's going to cost them everything, they pray for only boldness and power. Because if we're going to do this thing, we've got to do this thing as more than a theory or an ideology or a philosophy or a worldview. This cannot simply be our personal opinion. The world around us cannot write us off as superstitious people. Because we have a God that is alive today. We have a God that still reigns today. And so they get together and they say, God, give us boldness and give us power. And God has an answer for them. He's got a strategy for this. How many of you want more boldness and more power? God, I hope every hand is up. I do. I'm in for this. Let's go. And, and there's an answer. And strangely enough, the answer was not to give them three power verses they could put on sticky notes and stick on their mirror, read them while they brush their teeth in the morning. The answer was not to give them, you know, John Maxwell's new book on fearless leadership or whatever. Maddie Montgomery's new book called Scary God that releases on Tuesday that'll help you overcome the fear of man. Uh, God's answer was not to give them a new book or a new sermon. It wasn't to give them an accountability partner that could say, come on, buddy, let's do this. God has an answer, but his answer wasn't to inform them of some information. His answer was not to give them some information they didn't have before. His answer was this. Look in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. They, they had just finished praying for boldness and power. It says in the very next verse, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. 
This is how the world got changed. 